0: Hello, I am Matthew Hurst, the worship minister of First Baptist Church Watauga, and we want to simply say thank you for listening to these messages. We'd like to invite you on Sunday morning at 1045 to join us in worship of God and to hear from His Word. Our mission here at FBC Wataga is to exalt the Savior equip the saints and to evangelize the lost one person at a time. So I pray as you listen to these messages that you would be encouraged and equipped as you listen to the word of the Lord today. It is good to be with you today. We're going to continue our study in the gospel of John. Before we do, I want to just begin with a story for illustration purposes. It's a story that you're familiar with. It's the story of the first king of Israel, King Saul. King Saul was uh, chosen by God. He was ordained, so to speak, by the prophet Samuel, and and given his job to do. Now, when Saul was chosen by God to be king, Scripture says that Saul was small in his own eyes that he didn't think much of himself. And God chose him and equipped him and rose him up and he became the first king of Israel. And then God gave him a particular assignment. There was a group of, of uh, people, the Amalekites, who had been a, uh, uh, a terror on, in Israel's side, so to speak. And God gave Saul an assignment through Samuel. He said, I want you to go to the Amalekites and completely destroy them. You can't, don't, don't take any plunder, don't loot. You got to leave everything behind. Destroy everything. Kill the king, destroy the people, and, and uh, come back. And so Saul goes out and does most of what God called him to do, but Saul decided he had a better idea. And so God speaks to Samuel the prophet while Saul is still out taking care of this and tells Samuel, hey, Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do. He... He didn't kill the king. He's bringing the king back basically as a trophy. And, and he didn't, they've taken a whole bunch of loot. They've taken a lot of sheep and oxen and some of the better stuff of the Amalekites. And so Samuel gets up and meets Saul on the road back. And Saul is greeting him and he's all, you know, excited. And he goes, yeah, I did what the Lord told me to do. And Samuel said, no, you didn't. Oh, yeah, I did. I went out and, and, and I destroyed the Amalekites. And and." I love Samuel's response. He says, well, what is this sound of cows mooing and sheep baying in the background that I hear? And, and Saul says, oh, well, you know, I, I did what I was supposed to do. But some of the people, they, they, they decided to keep some of the better things to bring back. Uh, you know, isn't that just like us? When we get caught, we, we want to blame somebody else. My first thought... When I read this again, preparing this week, was our speaker of the house gets caught, wants to blame somebody else for their sin. That's exactly what Saul's doing. He's blaming someone else for his sin. And so Samuel looks at him and he says, Do You remember when you were small in your eyes and God made you something? Haven't, basically, this is my translation here. Saul, you've got a little bit too big for your britches. You think you know better than God what's right. And so he's done with you. You're no longer going to be king. In fact, the, very, this is in, the story's in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes and finds David and anoints him as the next king. Samuel said this to Saul, and this is his reasoning. He says, does the Lord not take pleasure... Or does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. We, we tend to think that God desires, needs, wants our sacrifices. The sacrificial system was there to point to our, our sin, Help us understand our sin and point to our cleansing. What God desires is obedience, not sacrifice. God doesn't want you to come up with a way that you're going to reach up to Him. God's desire is for you to hear Him and respond obediently to Him. I believe that this gives us the best understanding of what's going on when we get to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. So if you would, turn with me there. This is a, also a familiar story to you. This is the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. And I, I, the, when I, we discussed this passage this week, I started the staff meeting by reading this text and then asking the staff, how, how have you seen this passage abused or misquoted in recent days? And there was a whole list of things, because this is a passage that gets abused and, and misused for our own purposes. Essentially, we, we've actually even heard on TV recently, this passage being used as an excuse for busting store windows and looting. You know, it wouldn't be on Jesus to flip over tables and go, you know, turn things upside down and tear stuff up. Well, unless you're the son of God, whose temple is being desecrated, you don't you cannot have this kind of righteous anger. You remember that Jesus is God. John's making that point. He is God who has stepped down in the flesh to walk among us. He is God. And the house of God, the temple, has historically represented the presence of God. And it is that temple that is being abused and misused for their purposes. Read with me the text. The scripture says in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. (laughs) Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem, during the Passover festival, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs he was doing, Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all, and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now this passage kind of breaks down and gives us three different scenes or uh, uh, like act one, act two, act three. The first one is Jesus coming into the temple and cleansing of the temple. The second one is his uh, prediction of the resurrection, his foretelling of the resurrection. And then the third one is John's commentary on what he just saw and, uh, and later on writing from a time after Jesus had died and rose again, him reflecting back on that. And so I want us to look at this, this first phrase, this temple cleansing. What is it that aggravated Jesus so much? What is it that made him so angry? So I, I think that more than anything else, what we see in the New Testament is Jesus is intolerant of those who use his name, his father's name, or his house for their own selfish and evil purposes. Jesus could, could deal with the woman caught in adultery. He could deal with the, the woman at the well who had five previous husbands and was living with a man who was not her husband. He could work with those people. The people that Jesus was intolerant of was those who were the religious people who were getting rich and wealthy and powerful off of his name and off his father's name whose heart was not Right? Who had lost perspective, who were going through the motions of religion and sacrifice and doing all of the the checking all their boxes and doing all the little things that made them look good, but inside their heart they were dead. Now remember, This passage, when John included this story at this point for a purpose, I don't want to get deep into this, but the Gospel of John was not written chronologically like the Gospel of Luke. John's intention was not to give us a day-by-day account. John specifically has a thesis, and he's writing to prove that thesis, that that Jesus is the Son of God, that in Christ we have life, thus the title of uh, of our series, Life in Jesus' Name. And so... Pay attention to where he places this. The story that was immediately before this was when Jesus turned water into wine. He took those, those large ceremonial cleansing pots and filled them with wine, which in the long run is gonna give us a picture of the cleansing blood of Christ that'll be poured out for our sins. He immediately followed this story with the story of Nicodemus. One of these Pharisees, one of these religious leaders who at least was beginning to have his, his heart open and he was beginning to pursue and ask questions and he had at least a soft heart to be receptive to what God had. But right now he's dealing with those people who are just the opposite. These are people who are are getting wealthy and powerful off of the temple, off of the name of Christ. William Barclay, in his commentary written a few decades ago, said that when the Roman uh, government, when the Roman general came in with his army and destroyed the temple, they removed over what would have been in that day, which Barclay wrote his commentary about four or five decades ago, would have been the equivalent of $10 million that they took out of the temple. That that's the kind of money that was being made by these high priests, by, by these religious people on the backs of the poor, on the backs of those who were coming to worship and surrender their to to, to bring their worship and, and, and make these sacrifices to God. But there's four things in particular that we see here. The first one is this: Jesus hated, <laughs> that's a strong word. Uh, People who used religion for personal gain. And that's the quote that I gave you a little while ago. These people were required, any any Jewish man 19 years or older was required to pay a temple tax every year. And so as they would come to the temple to pay this temple tax, they were not allowed to pay that temple tax in any other currency except for the official Jewish currency. Well, that currency was not held anywhere outside the temple. And so they all had Roman coins that they would have to bring. And the the money changers were, were not just your everyday marketplace money changers outside the temple. These were money changers that were under the authority of the high priest and the religious leaders. And so those money changers in that... Uh, in the temple, we were charging an exorbitant tax on top of an exchange rate on top. So, you bring your money in here to pay your temple tax. Well, your money's not good enough because it has Caesar's face on it and his inscription. So, you have to change that money into the official money and then you can use that to pay your temple tax. So, they were literally robbing people right there in the temple, in the name of religion. And so instead of just paying the temple tax, they were getting double taxed on top of that. In addition to that, the these money change or the, 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 the animals that were being sold, uh, there was a racket going on, essentially, that you could only use those animals who had been verified by the priest as holy, unblemished animals. And you might walk... 50 miles bringing your perfect unblemished lamb, but you can imagine that by the time you got there, the priest could find a blemish on your lamb. And so then you would have to buy with temple money an unblemished lamb that had been raised by the priest. And the same went with oxen and the dove. And so what you had going on in this, in the, in, within the walls of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, you had a whole marketplace that was under the, the distributive authority, the racket of the high priest. And so it was, it was all about power and money and not about worship. Jesus hated that and he still hates it today. I believe today you still see religion being used for power and money. And it's an affront to God. God cares more about your heart being in the right place. About you surrendering your heart completely over to him than he does about your sacrifice. See, the the priest could make this argument. Well, we're given our sacrifice We're we're doing what the rules tell us to do. We're sacrificing our lambs. We're sacrificing our oxen. we're, we're, We're following all of the rules. We're checking all of our boxes. And God says, I don't care if you're checking all of your boxes or not. What you're doing to hurt these people, what you're doing to hurt my people is sin. See, Amos had something to say about this long before. Back in Amos chapter 5, in fact, there's several sections of Amos that deal with this. In Amos chapter 5, just a portion of this says, Therefore, you trample the poor and exact a grain tax from him and you will never live in the house in houses of cut stone you or you will never live in the houses of cut stone you have built you will never drink of the wine from the lush vineyards that you have planted for i know your crimes and your sins are insurmountable they oppress the righteous they take a bribe they deprive the poor of justice in the city gates so amos talked about how in the name of religion when you rob the poor when you hurt those who are hurting this is, and, and you come and bring your sacrifice following that. God says, I hate and despise your feast. I cannot stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fatted calves. Take away from me the noise of your song. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like the unfalling, unfailing stream. God, God does not need your sacrifice or my sacrifice. There is nothing that I can give God that adds to His value. God desires our hearts. He desires us to surrender our hearts fully and completely to him. What we would rather do is negotiate. Well, God, I'll give you this if you just don't ask for this. Lord, I'll do this for you. But God God doesn't desire negotiation. God desires a heart surrendered fully to him. The priest wanted to make sacrifices while they were doing everything else. It's akin to the idea that you can go out and live however you want to and go to confession and confess it and it's all absolved and it's over. That's not what God desires. That's fake, false religion. That is not a relationship with a living God whom you have surrendered your heart and life to. And God will reject that. In fact, he says he hates that. And when you come to bring your sacrifice and you come to bring your worship and lift up your voice to him, if you come with that covering up your own sin and not not surrendering to him, he will not even hear your song. He'll reject it outright. God desires surrender, not sacrifice. Jesus was upset because they were cheating the poor. We've just seen that. They were were filling the coffers of the temple. They had more than an abundance of what they needed while they ignored those who were on their doorstep who were hurting. And then third, they were preventing others from worship. All of this marketplace was going on in the court of the Gentiles. The, the, The Gentiles who desired to come and worship Jehovah God could only come so far into the temple. Of course, you know, the holy the holies is the inner sanctum where only the high priest once a year could go. And then you had uh, the, the courtyard outside of that where other priests could go. And then the courtyard out of that where the Jew, outside of that where the Jews could go. But the only place that the Gentiles could go was into the court of Gentiles. That's as close as they could get to what represented the presence of God to come and worship. And that's where this market had been set up. Can you imagine the only place that you can come and pray, the only place that you could come and try to get close to God to worship, there was donkeys and oxen and, and dove and, and market, you know, money exchangers all around this whole bazaar going on around you while well, you're trying to pray. And that's why when Mark records this story, he, he remembers Jesus saying, you have, this, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves and it's supposed to be a house of prayer. The, the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be a place for the Gentiles to come and pray. And they had turned that into a, not only a marketplace, but a den of thieves. And so they, had, they were preventing others from worship. Their greed was keeping others out of the presence of God. The Jewish leadership, the religious establishment at that time, had completely forgotten whom God had called them to be. When God called, spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, right before he gave him the Ten Commandments, in, in Exodus chapter 19, God told Moses, He said, I have, I have called, the, I, I brought these, my people out on eagle's wings. You've seen what I did to the Egyptian army. I have cared for my people and I have loved them and I have made them into a kingdom of priests." You know what a priest is? A priest is the one who has the privilege of coming into the presence of God. But the priest has the responsibility of taking God's message out to those who need to hear it. Now why is that important? That's who Israel was supposed to be, their entire existence. They were called to be a kingdom of priests. It wasn't that God was their God to give them victory over everybody on earth so that they could establish wealth and and security on this earth. God had called them out to be a kingdom of priests. He had called them to be a people who had the privilege of calling God their own God, but had the responsibility of taking the name of God to those who needed to hear it. That's what got Jonah in trouble. He didn't want to go to the Assyrians because they were the enemy. God said, Take my message to them so they can repent. He said, I ain't going to do it. So he got on a boat and tried to flee. He got thrown overboard, swallowed by a big fish, sent back to the Assyrians. So he finally, reluctantly, walks through the streets saying, Y'all better repent, or you know, you tell he didn't have a lot of enthusiasm. Y'all better repent, or God's going to strike you. And they repented. And then he was mad that they repented. God said, go to the people that you don't like, go to your enemy, go to those who don't look like you, and tell them about me so that they can repent and they can can have life. And Israel didn't want to do it. They wanted God to be their God. They wanted Jesus to be their King and their Messiah for their own purposes. And their desire was to gain wealth off of the backs. And, and, And it is so That's what makes us so sick, I believe, in Jesus' eyes. Right there in the only place that the Gentiles could come and worship, those who the Jews were supposed to be telling about their great God, weren't even able to come and worship. Because they had this whole marketplace, this whole bazaar going on there. If what we're doing as the people of Jesus Christ, if what we're doing as the temple of his Holy Spirit now, his dwelling place, prevents others from coming to Christ, it'll sicken him. That's enough for the first point. I better get to the second one. As you get to the next scene, and they, the, the, the Jewish leadership recognized that this was a messianic act. What I mean by that is they recognized that by coming in and cleansing the temple, Jesus was exercising what will be the authority of the coming Messiah. He came in, and he's flipping tables over, and he's driving them out. There's nobody that can do that. This is God's house. We're the priest. We're in charge. There's only one who could do that, and that would be the Messiah himself. And so they, that's why they asked this question. What sign are you going to give us for doing these things? What's your sign? How are we going to know that you're the Messiah? How are we going to know that you have the authority to come into this house, into this temple, and start flipping on? Isn't it amazing already that the Jews didn't, I mean, one Jesus, a bunch of Jewish leaders, they didn't kick him out? Jesus was able to by himself go in and under his authority cleanse out the marketplace Drive them all out on his own without being attacked himself. It's amazing because you see these other times where, where Jesus sneaks out through the crowd to keep from getting stoned. At this point, he, he, he exuded such authority that they didn't even know what to do. So all they could do was ask him, what's the sign? Well, this is the sign. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. The Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build. And you'll raise it up in three days? They're saying this in about 26, 27 AD at that point. The temple had begun construction in 20 BC. So it had been being built for 46 years. The temple actually wasn't even completed at that point. The main part, this part of the temple that they're in was, was completed. The temple was still under construction until into the 60 ADs. When it was destroyed by the Roman army. So this magnificent, glorious temple, Jesus says... He's just giving them imagery, as John says, Jesus wasn't speaking about this temple; he was speaking about his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the statement that Jesus had made. There's an incredible comparison here because once Jesus rose up from the grave and established his church, that that temple no longer represented the dwelling place of the Spirit of God; the church did you and I, not so much as individuals, but as the body of Christ. That's why that imagery is used all throughout the New Testament. As the body of Christ. The church is also referred to as the the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Spirit. We are the body of Christ. In which his spirit dwells. His spirit is no longer located in the Holy of Holies, set aside as some temple, which in all honesty, the, the, the glory of the majestic God could not be contained in the Holy of Holies anyway. God only He gave that as a representation. He made His presence known there. You see it when the temple was ordained. when it was sanctified. God God let them know that he was there and that was a place for them to come worship him. But once that veil was torn in two, we sang about a little bit ago, once Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in two, the temple was no longer needed because God was no longer going to be worshipped on this mountain. God was going to be worshipped wherever his spirit was, which Jesus is going to predict next week in John chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus. See, all all of these stories tie together in John's letter or in John's gospel here. And so, Jesus said, I'll tell you, I'll give you the sign. You know what the sign is? That I am the Messiah? I'm going to be resurrected. When I'm resurrected, there is no greater sign that Jesus is who he says he is. Oh, man, when he resurrected Lazarus, that was a big deal. That was was a pretty awesome sign. But even then, people looked at that and go, well, he's bringing people back from the dead. we got to do something about him now. You know, when when Jesus turned water into wine, what an incredible sign. When Jesus fed 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fish, what an incredible miracle. But Jesus said, here's the one that's gonna matter. This is the sign that's gonna let you know I am who I say I am when this body comes back up out of the grave. And that sign is what convinced the disciples. See, this is what amazes me. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Judas and Judas Iscariot, they had walked with Jesus for three years. They had seen all these other signs. There's people in the next paragraph, it says that they're seeing the signs he's doing. in Jerusalem and are starting to believe in him. The disciples had seen him do all of those things. And they believed, but man, when he died on that cross, they went into hiding. <laughs> when Jesus died on the cross, they were hiding in the upper room, trembling, wondering if they were next, if they were going to be sacrificed, if they were going to be crucified, until they saw the resurrected Lord. And when they saw the resurrected Jesus, those guys changed. They went from being uh, shriveling cowards to being bold evangelists who could not be stopped. Those disciples who saw Jesus resurrected put their lives on the line until, up until the very end, until they died for me as as a logical person who tends to think with a mathematician's brain when I've struggled with doubts about my own faith there's a lot of reasons that help me work through that but the number one thing is the resurrection of Jesus Christ because if he had not been raised from the grave Peter would have known it and Peter would not have given up his life to be crucified upside down James would have known it if it was fake, if Jesus had not been resurrected, James would have known it. He would not have let his head be chopped off. See, if, it, if, if, if Jesus had not been resurrected, Paul would not have seen him on the road to Damascus. Right? It's the resurrection that is this all, the only sign that we need. And historically, it's enough for me to look back at it and say, you know, whether you... Whether you struggle with the details of the resurrection, the, the, the story or not, the very fact that these men were so transformed that they laid their lives on the line and they, they, they were willing to die for their faith tells me that what they had seen was real. They all witnessed Jesus die on that cross. They saw him get put in that grave and they saw his resurrected body. That is the sign that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God. And that's enough for me. The fact that Jesus rose from again from the grave gives me hope, helps me know that there's a future, lets me know that I'll see my daughter who passed away 15 years ago again. The fact that Jesus came up out of the grave is all I need. So Jesus says, you want a sign that I have the authority to cleanse this place out? You want a sign that lets you see that this temple is, is no longer going to even be necessary, I'm going to come up out of the grave. This temple is going to be destroyed and resurrected three days later. And not, people didn't understand that. The disciples didn't understand that. Certainly the Jewish leaders didn't understand that. But those disciples remembered it. They looked back on this and they, they remembered what he said and they went, wow, that's cool. And I'm sure that's part of what helped them. They, after Jesus rose again, they remembered. You know, if, if I was going to do what some of those guys did, suffer some of the fates that they suffered, I would have had to have been absolutely, completely convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. The resurrection is what did it. The resurrection was the sign that made all the difference in the world. Now, there's, there's others out there who are starting to believe in him. And... Remember, John, once again, John is not recording every event. John is not even trying to record things necessarily chronologically. I, I believe that, that the temple cleansing that we read here actually took place much later in Jesus' life. And John put it here for a very particular purpose for a reason as he wrote the Gospel of John. Okay, And he put it in between the, the, the first sign of, the, of the, the turning water into wine and his discussion with Nicodemus for a reason. There's purpose behind John's inclusion of this story right here. But people were believing Jesus was who he said he was because of signs. So we only have one recorded at this point. We only have the the turning water into wine. But Jesus was doing things out in the streets of Jerusalem that people were seeing. And they were starting to believe him. But not everyone who believes is going to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Verse 23 says, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So they believed because they saw miracles. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them well. When I read this passage, it always takes me back to Matthew chapter 7 toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about the end times. And he says these words. He said... Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. So there's a lot of people who believe in the name of Jesus, there's a lot of people who believe Jesus is who he says he is. But they're still not willing to surrender their hearts to Christ. What I find as a pastor, when I, when I work with people like that, they'll, it, 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 it truly is just that. It's an issue of surrender. They want to negotiate with God. They want to do good deeds so that they can measure up. You know, I'm a good person, and if I do these good things, certainly God's going to like me, and he's going to let me into heaven, Right? Remember what we said about Saul earlier? God desires obedience more than sacrifice. God's not looking for your sacrifice. He doesn't need you to bring an unblemished lamb. The, The real lamb of God already died and shed his blood for you. There's no longer need for sacrifices. What God's looking for is obedience. His desire in fact, the sacrificial system it, it, as a whole in total is no longer needed it 's no longer in existence. once Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood for us and rose again there 's no longer need for, for any sacrifices god doesn 't need anything that I can bring to him. I was privileged this weekend for the last couple of days to to go out to the the lease where I hunt and and to sit there and, and to watch the sunrise. And to reflect on the fact that if you were to to take a satellite view of just the ranch that I'm hunting on, you take that satellite view with me out there, you would never be able to see me. I'd, I'd be a speck. I mean a, 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 like a pin point on that satellite map of just that ranch. And if you expand that satellite out to Throckmorton County or you expand that satellite out to Texas, you would never be able to see that that prick of that pin that would represent me on that map and you expand that out to the earth and and the earth becomes an orb and you, you can't find the borders of Texas on it we serve a God who reigns over all of that we serve a God who created our entire solar system who reigns over the whole universe he doesn't need my sacrifice he doesn't need me at all but he loves me and he wants a relationship with me. And he made that possible and proved that to me by sending his son to die on the cross so that the, the temple's no longer needed, those sacrifices are no longer needed. We become his temple, we become his dwelling place through what Jesus did. Let me kind of close things out this way, a little bit different than did the first service. In a lot of ways, those Jewish leaders were playing the religious game. They were going through the motions, checking their boxes, right? So that they could make their sacrifice so they could, then God would have to accept them. All the while doing so, getting rich on the backs of the poor, When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't playing games. I think far too often we play the religious game with God. And God says, I don't want your games. I don't need you to play games with me. I'm God. Are we willing to set aside our negotiating tactics, to set aside our our religion? our sacrifices, and surrender our hearts fully to Christ. Then and only then will any sacrifices, any gifts that we give to God be acceptable to him. Only then will the words that we sing of worship be meaningful to his ears when our hearts first surrender and line up with him. Hey folks, this is Pastor Dennis Hester and I wanna thank you for joining First Baptist Watauga through our podcast and hearing the message today. My prayer is that you were encouraged and uplifted by the preaching and teaching of God's word. Our goal here is to equip you in your faith and to encourage you as you worship the Lord and seek to serve Him. If you have a question or you have a decision that you'd like to make, I'd encourage you to reach out to us through our website at fbcwatauga.org or simply call the church office. You can find that number or our email addresses. They're on that website as well. And by doing that, uh, we'd be glad to hear from you and we'd be encouraged about hearing what God's doing in your life. So God bless you and have a great day.